Hey, if you got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew in the sixth chapter and just hold that for a moment. We're beginning a new sermon series this weekend called uh, God, Money, and Me. And the first message is called Breaking Down the Power of Money. So um, I thought about this message. I thought, well, how can we begin? You know, maybe I should do something different. And I thought, well, maybe we'll start with a little word association game. That would be different. But because I've never done that with you before, I thought I probably ought to try it out on myself first because sometimes, quite honestly, you're not the most cooperative people. I don't know what the story is on that, but you aren't. And so I got together with my son, Andrew, and I said, come up with some words. And then the deal was when I saw the word or heard the word, then I would immediately say the first thing that came to my mind that was the opposite of that word. And so it started off pretty simple, up, down, I said down. Then the next word was right, so I said left. Then it got more complicated. He put up their road work. And I said Satan. And then he kept it up. He put up snow. And I said Satan. Then he put up patriots, as in New England patriots. And won't you just answer that with me? I said Satan, okay. Well, I'm telling you that by that time, I was in a really bad mood. Now, I thought it was a good thing, but by that time, it made me in a really bad mood, and so I said, the heck with that. Let's just dive into the Scripture, okay? So, if you've got your Bibles open to Matthew 6 and you're able, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. My apologies to any Patriots fans that are in the room this weekend. This is Jesus speaking. This is a Sermon on the Mount. We're going to pick it up in verse 19 and just read down through verse 24. Jesus said, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. All right, there it is. You can be seated. Every week we ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. Did you notice that Jesus plays his own word association game in that text? He begins by talking about two opposite kingdoms, storing up treasure in two opposite kingdoms. He does that in verses 19 and 20 when he talks about storing up treasures on earth and storing up treasures in heaven. He talks about two opposite kingdoms. And then he goes on and he talks about two opposite influences, the influence of light and the influence of darkness. He does that in verses 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And then finally, he, he does it by talking about two opposite masters, the master of God and the master of money. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, let's be honest. If we were playing a word association game and I told you that when you hear or read this word, you think of the very first thing that comes to your mind that is the opposite of that word, and I told you the word God or I showed you the word God, what would you say? You'd say my answer, wouldn't you? Satan. But that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say you cannot serve both God and Satan. He says you cannot serve both God and money. 
And by the way, look down there, if you got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, look down there. Have you ever noticed before in all the dozens of times that you have heard that passage or read that passage, have you ever noticed before that the word money is capitalized? Look at it. Why in the world is the word money capitalized there? We could probably give a lot of different reasons, but I think, honestly, that Jesus is just identifying money for exactly what it is in the world and for exactly what it is in our lives. It is a rival God. It's not just a medium of exchange. It's not just some resource to be used in good or bad ways, depending on our attitude. According to Jesus, money in this world is a power that seeks to dominate you and to dominate me like a God. And so that's why he very deliberately says, you cannot serve both God and money. And so, if we're ever going to break the power of money in our life, we're going to break down the power of money, that's the title of this message, then we need to develop a different kind of a mindset about money. If, if money really is like a rival God, if money is something that's a power that seeks to dominate us like a God, then we've got to be very vigilant about this. And what that means is we've got to develop a biblical mindset about money, not a worldly mindset about money. We need a biblical mindset about money. But what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it's not complicated. We simply pay attention to what the Bible says about money. And when you start to examine what the Bible says about money, the first thing that you discover is that everything belongs to God. That means all money belongs to God. Everything. Everyone say everything. Everything belongs to God. And there are no shortages in the, of scriptures and verses in the Bible that are proof text to that truth. In fact, friends, whenever you open up a Bible and you talk about money, whenever you open up a Bible and you talk about managing money or stewarding money, this is where you begin every time. This is the foundational truth about money in the Bible. Everything belongs to God. Let me put some verses up on the screen that remind us of that. And you just read them with me. Let me hear your verse, voices. Psalm 24.1 says, read it with me. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. How about this verse from Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 14? Read it with me. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. How about Job 41 and verse 11? And by the way, friends, these are words spoken by God. Job 41 11, these aren't words spoken about God. These are words spoken by God. Read these words with me. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Now, I'm going to stop right there, but the truth is we could go on and on for a long time because there are a lot of verses in the Bible, both in the Old and the New Testament, that teach us this fundamental truth about money from a biblical perspective. Everything belongs to God. Everything, everything that you think you own, everything that I think I own belongs to God. We are not owners of everything. At the very best, we're just managers, we're stewards of what God has entrusted to us because everything belongs to God. But that's not the only thing the Bible says about money. Let's talk about it on what we, what we might call a deeper and a more practical level. One of the most familiar stories in the Gospels is the story of Zacchaeus. It's found in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. I'm sure you know the story, at least most of you. Jesus enters the city of Jericho one day, and he draws a crowd. And in Jericho lived this man named Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. He was hated because he was a Jewish man who had sold out his birthright, his, his, his heritage to the Romans so that under their authority, he could extort money from his fellow countrymen, and they hated him. 
Well, everybody wanted to see Jesus, but you know, Zacchaeus was short, and so he couldn't see over the crowd, so he climbed up in a sycamore tree to get a better look at Jesus. I just have been back from the Holy Land about a week, and every time I go to the Holy Land, there is a, my bus takes me into the city of Jericho and right up to a tree in the city of Jericho and says, that's the traditional site where Zacchaeus climbed a tree to see Jesus. Now, do I think that was the same tree? <laughs> no, I don't. But it was some tree in Jericho, right? And so it's a, good, it's a good memory. But anyway, at some point, Jesus is traveling along, and he looks up, and he sees Zacchaeus in the tree. He says, listen, dude, you need to come down because I need to have dinner with you at your house today. And that's what happened. He went home and had dinner with Zacchaeus and a bunch of notorious sinners and a bunch of other tax collectors. And at some point during the evening meal, this is what happens. Listen to Luke 19, verses 8 through 10. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. Now, everybody look up here at me for a minute. And let's ask this question. What just happened? What just happened in Zacchaeus' home around the dinner table? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Jesus judged the reality of Zacchaeus' salvation by his willingness to part with his money for the glory of God and for the good of others. And listen, friends, I don't know about you, but I think that tells us a lot about how God views money. How about the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19? You don't have to turn there. Just listen. I'm going to read it to you real quick. I know you're familiar with it probably, but listen to it real quick. Now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man replied. Jesus replied, Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect... Go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? So this man comes to Jesus with the ultimate question, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And Jesus talked about keeping the commandments, and the guy said, I I've kept all of them. He assured Jesus he'd kept them all, and now Jesus puts him to the test. Sometimes that's what Jesus does, especially when it comes to financial matters. And in Matthew 19, 21, he said, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And after that, the man walked away. This man, listen, who was so genuine and so sincere in coming to Jesus with this question, I believe that in my heart. I don't think he was just saying this to be heard. I believe he genuinely and sincerely was seeking the answer to this question. This man who was so sincere went away sad. Some translations say he went away grieved because he had great wealth. He just couldn't part with that wealth. The next thing that happens is Jesus turns to his disciples and he shocks them by saying, I tell you the truth, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were shocked because they never understood the barrier that money can be to genuine spiritual birth and genuine spiritual growth. And I'm not sure we always understand the barrier it can be as well. 
Now, it's important to make sure that I say that Jesus doesn't call all of us to give away all of our money and all of our possessions to the poor, but Jesus looked at this man and knew that his ultimate God was money. Remember? Jesus said you can't serve both God and money because he is identifying money as a rival God, something that wants to control our lives like a God. Jesus looked at this man and he knew that money was his ultimate God. And so here's the principle that we learn from this story. If Christ isn't Lord over our money and our possessions, he isn't Lord at all. If Christ, if Jesus isn't Lord over every single part of our life, every single part, then he's not Lord at all. And this story tells us a lot about how God views money. How about moving from the Gospels to the book of Acts? Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul is in the city of Ephesus. And listen to me, friends. God was with Paul in the city of Ephesus in extraordinary and miraculous ways. In fact, listen to what uh, we read in verses 11 and 12 of Acts chapter 19. This is while Paul was there in Ephesus. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. How about that? You ever been up late at night and you're watching television and you see a a televangelist on television, he's got his hair slicked back so far he can't shut his mouth, and he's telling you, if you send me $1,000, you send me $10,000, and I'm going to send you a miracle handkerchief, and that miracle handkerchief is going to take care of all your problems. you got a sickness, you got a a disability, you got some problem in your life, send me a check for $10,000 and I'll send you a miracle handkerchief. Well... The only problem is Paul was the real deal. I'm not sure about the televangelists and their bad hair. Paul was the real deal. Well, as a result of that, there were a lot of conversions happening in Ephesus. And so Acts 19, verses 18 through 20, and I think we'll put these on the screen, goes on to say this. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Now, here's the deal. My NIV Bible, my 1984 version of the NIV Bible, says 50,000 drachma. You look at that in the original language of the New Testament, it says 50,000 pieces of silver. How much money do you think that was? that these guys were willing to destroy because of their newfound faith in Christ. I'm not exactly sure. One way you could calculate it is you could understand that in Jesus' day, one drachma was equal to a day's wage, and that means the value of 50,000 drachma was equal to a man's wage for 137 years. However you look at it, this was a lot of money. And no one destroys something with that much value unless they're convinced it's the will of God. It wouldn't be a stretch to say that they were destroying assets that they'd probably spent the better part of their lives trying to accumulate. But how many of you know that's what happens or that's what's supposed to happen when you genuinely and sincerely surrender your heart to Christ? His will becomes your will. Now, just like with those verses that we looked at earlier that tell us that everything belongs to God, I said I could go on and on with those verses. I could go on and on with more stories like this that teach us that the way we view and handle money reveals the reality of our spiritual condition. That's the point that is being made here. You go back to the story of Zacchaeus, and when he, when he met Jesus, he was willing to, to give away his money for 
the glory of God and the good of others. You meet the rich young ruler. He was not willing to part with his money, even to get the question answered, what must I do to get eternal life? These people who were converted in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, when they became saved, they were willing to get rid of every part of their old life, even to the point of destroying something that was incredibly valuable. What do all those stories have in common? Well, one thing is they teach us that, that the way we view money and the way we handle money reveals our true spiritual condition. Now, we, want, we might want to make it about other things. We might want to say, well, the, the way I attend church reveals my spiritual condition. Or the number of Bible studies that I've been to in my life reveals my spiritual condition. Or the good things that I do over here and the bad things that I don't do over here, that reveals my spiritual condition. But what does Jesus say? What's the Bible teach us over and over again? He teaches us, he says, and the Bible teaches us that the way we view money, the way we view money, our attitude toward money, the way we handle money, that's what reveals our true spiritual condition. Let that soak in for a minute. That's a sobering thought. I told you I've been back from the Holy Land for about a week, and we had a large group with us, and so we had two buses, the red bus and the blue bus, and I rotated buses each and every day so I could spend time with each group. And when I was on the red bus one day, we were driving down the road, and I was sitting across the aisle from the red bus guide. His name was Hezzy. He was a pretty incredible guy. He was 82 years old. 82 years old. I'm going to go on record and say right now in the presence of God and you witnesses, I don't want to be working when I'm 82 years old. How about you? But he loved it. It energized him. And he had so much energy. And this is a grueling, exhausting trip. And he was out in front of everybody. And he was a wealth of information. He was a tremendous guide. The people on the red bus just loved him to death. Well, he leaned over to me and said, Pastor, have you ever seen a widow's mite? And he he got a little uh, plastic bag out. And he was showing me these really small coins that in Jesus's day were not worth very much money. Now, if you're familiar with the gospels, you know that in Mark chapter 12, Jesus told the story about a woman who one day came to the temple and put two mites into the temple treasury. And that's where we get the term widow's mites. This was in contrast, if you look at the story, this was in contrast to a lot of rich people who came to the temple and put large amounts of money into the temple treasury. And after it was all over, Jesus called his disciples together and he praised this widow by saying she put in more than anyone else. He said, because she gave all she had. He said, the rich people gave out of their wealth, but she, and these are Jesus' exact words, Mark chapter 12 and verse 44. She, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. Now, that's a great story, and we talk about that story. We do Bible studies on that, preach sermons on that. But there's one part of that story that we don't often notice or emphasize, and it's in the very beginning. The whole story begins in Mark chapter 12 and verse 41. Listen to the very first part of verse 41. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched, everyone say watched, watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say Jesus sat down and just happened to notice some people putting money into the temple treasury. It doesn't say Jesus sat down and just caught a glimpse of a handful of people putting money into the temple treasury. It says he sat down and he watched Everything Jesus did was very deliberate in that setting. He sat down specifically opposite of the place where the offerings were put in, and he watched the crowd one by one by one come and put their money in the temple treasury. 
I want you to listen to me close. We're talking about breaking down the power of money. We're talking about the importance of that because money seeks to be a rival God in our lives. Money in this world seeks to control us like a God controls us. So we're talking about breaking down the power of money, and we do that by developing a biblical mindset about money. When we develop a biblical mindset about money, we understand the Bible teaches us first that everything belongs to God, everything, and second, our attitude toward money, the way we view money, the way we handle money, that is the revealer of our spiritual condition. And here's the thing that I would add to that, friends, based on that story in Mark 12. God is watching. Jesus is watching. He's watching everything about our life. You think, you think your life, life matters to God? Yeah, it does. Because your life matters to God, because my life matters to God, he notices everything about our lives. He's watching. He's watching the way we handle his money. It's a big deal to God. That's something that we have to wrap our hearts and our minds around. And so what are we going to do? What steps are we going to take to make sure we're living out this biblical mindset about money? Well, we have to embrace what it means to be a good manager or a good steward of what God has entrusted to us. A few months ago, I picked up a book that was called The Genius of Generosity. It was written by a man named Chip Ingram. You may recognize his name. For many years, he was the pastor of Venture Church in Los Gatos, California, the president of Life on the Edge, which is an international teaching and discipleship ministry. But in the book, here's just a little story I want to share with you, and we'll bring this to a close. In the book, he tells a story about meeting a man named John Saville in the very first church he pastored in rural Texas when he was a very young man. In fact, he writes that he was just a young, inexperienced pastor with a lot of zeal, and John was an elderly man who had become a Christian late in life. And he said, we had absolutely nothing in common except that he was the chairman of the elders and I was the new pastor of a not-so-thriving church of 35 people in a not-so-thriving rural town, rural Texas town of 3,500 people. He said one day John invited him to join him for lunch in his downtown accounting firm, downtown Dallas accounting firm, a firm that John Seville owned. They sat there in lunch, and toward the end of the lunch, he said John Seville took out a white box from his pocket, and he slid it toward Chip, and he said, I want you to consider joining me, entering into a secret pact with me, and he described that pact like this. He said, I have a desire to help poor and hurting people. You are in contact with poor and hurting people. I want you to be my eyes and ears to help them as God leads. And he opened up the box and took out a brown checkbook that was preloaded with $5,000. Now, here's the part of the story that I think we can learn from as we think about, you know, how do we, how do we live out this biblical mindset? How do, we, how do we embrace what it means to be a good steward and a good manager of what God has entrusted to us? Chip Ingram writes in his book that three things happened in his life as a result of that secret pact he entered into with John Seville, and all of them had a major impact on his life. You got to write these down somewhere. Number one, he said there wasn't a single day that went by when he didn't think about John Seville. After they entered into that secret pact, after he gave him that money to use to help poor and hurting people, he said there wasn't a single day that went by when he didn't think about John Seville. 
When he encountered someone in need, he thought about John Seville, whether it was a young woman with an unplanned pregnancy or a family who had lost their job and was in need of help and need of money. He tried to see the situation through John's eyes. He said, it was, I was constantly asking myself in every circumstance, what would John do in this situation? How would John spend his money in this situation? And he wrote in the book, John and I had known each other for over a year because of our roles at church, but our paths only crossed once a week. I had rarely spent time thinking about John until our deal. Then I found myself thinking about him multiple times a day, and over the next few months, I felt a lot closer to him than I ever had before. That's the first thing that happened. Here's the second thing that happened. I think this is interesting. He said, I quickly learned how to balance a checkbook. Think about that. He said, up to this point, you know, I'd never really paid much attention to balancing a checkbook. I had my own checkbook, but I never gave it a lot of thought. There wasn't a lot of money. And I, he said, I always thought that if at the end of a statement period, if I could get within 20 or $30 of what the bank had, that everything was going to be okay. But that changed when he took this checkbook from John Seville because now things are different. This wasn't his money. It was John's money, and he needed to take care of it, and he needed to be ready to give an accurate account of what was happening with his money at any time. The third thing that he said happened is this. John and I became great friends. In fact, listen to what he wrote in the book about John. He said, he never made me feel like his errand boy. Every few months, he would invite me to Dallas for lunch, and not the kind of lunch I was used to. This was no fast food combo meal or the daily special at the local diner. This was a celebration. He goes on to say, I would meet John at his office, and we would take the elevator up to the top floor of the skyscraper where you could see all of Dallas while you ate. The restaurant staff would greet him by name and give us menus that didn't have any prices on them. And John would prompt me to indulge. He'd say, the filet is great here. Why don't you try it? And why don't you add some lobster to it as well? By the way, folks, I checked my calendar before service, and I'm free for lunch next week several days. <laughs> he would remind me that God had been good to him, and he wanted, as a result, to give me the best lunch possible because we were there to celebrate. Now, now let me pause here. Let me ask you a question. If you've been listening, let me ask you a question. Do you see the spiritual correlation that's being made here? This is a pretty powerful picture. This, this relationship between John Seville and Chip Ingram, this is a pretty powerful picture of our relationship with God and the way we manage his resources. John, or Chip wrote in the book, why did, I start thinking, why did I start thinking about John all the time? Because I had a responsibility to act in his interest just as God invites us to represent him in the world. Why did I become faithful? Because it was his money. Just like we become faithful stewards of the resources God entrusts to us. Why did John and I become such good friends? Because we got together to celebrate. Just as God enjoys celebrating with us over the fruit he bears through us when we partner with him. God wants you and me to be good stewards, to be good managers of the money that he's entrusted us, whether it's a little or a lot. God knows better than anything the danger of money in the world today and in our lives today, that it seeks to be a rival God, that it controls, it seeks to control our lives like a God would control our lives. And so he knows we have to have a biblical mindset about money. And when we have a biblical mindset about money, we start 
here, number one, by understanding that everything belongs to God, everything. If you just have a little, that little belongs to God. But you know what? If you have a lot, that a lot belongs to God as well. Everything belongs to God. And because it belongs to God, he's watching you and the way you handle his money because he knows the way you view money and the way you handle money reveals the reality of your heart, of your spiritual condition. And so he wants to join together in a pact with you, but not a secret pact like the one between John Seville and Chip Ingram. He wants it to be a pact that's out in the open for everyone to see. And he wants you to think about him every single day as you handle his money. And he wants you to learn how to be faithful in keeping track of his money. We're going to talk more about that in coming weeks. And he wants you to live in the celebration of his faithfulness and his provision for all of your needs. God wants to give you a better life than anything you could ever find on your own. And that includes the part of your life that involves money. He wants to give you a better life. Well, I'm going to pray in just a moment, and our, our, uh, our worship team is going to come back out and lead us in one final song. I'm not going to invite any prayer counselors to come down this morning. We're just going to stand together here in just a moment and just worship God, just sing praises to God, a, a new song, a great song that I know is going to be a blessing to uh, all of you. Uh, but I, I just want you to worship God and think about those things we've talked about. So go ahead and stand with me this morning, and I'm going to pray. And then we're going to lift our voices in praise, and then I'm going to come back, and we're going to close our service uh, in a little bit of a different way, but we'll do it quickly, and then we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we love you, and we thank you for loving us, and thank you for your word and what it teaches us about life and living. And uh, I know mo money is an emotional subject for a lot of people, and uh, I, I know people, a lot of people don't have a good relationship with money for a variety of different reasons. Uh, some, be, some don't because of attitudes, some don't because of fear, some don't because of, uh, of, of, of what they see as a, as a lack of money. But help us just to know that everything that we think and feel about money, the way we use money, needs to be based on what you teach us in your word. And help us to be willing to be good stewards and uh, to praise you all the days of our life. That's my prayer, and I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.